I think our culture and our world has an interesting fascination with apocalyptic and end of the world type things. I think if you just look at the books that are written and the movies that are made, how many of those movies and books follow vampires and zombie apocalypses and alien invasions and nuclear war. We have this interesting fascination with those end times. And there are some people who take our preparation for those things very seriously. If you've ever uh, heard of the show Doomsday Preppers, right? There's a book that I uh, came across this week by the man uh, named Max Brooks. He's the author of uh, the book World War Z, if you've ever heard of that, about a zombie apocalypse. And he wrote another book titled The Zombie Survival Guide, Complete Protection from the Living Dead. And this uh, book is described, at least on the website I looked at, as fully illustrated and exhaustively comprehensive. This book covers everything you need to know, including how to understand zombie physiology and behavior, the most effective defense tactics and weaponry, ways to outfit your home for a long siege, and how to survive and adapt in any territory or terrain. And that book sold well over a million copies and made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I do think that that's interesting. We have a fascination with the end times and apocalypses and we even have a fascination with how to be prepared for those end times. Now, I'm personally not prepared for a zombie apocalypse. I don't know if any of you are. Maybe, I, I just personally don't think that that's going to happen. If you think otherwise, I'd love to debate that with you sometime after the service or during the week. But I do believe that preparation in general is a very important thing. And I don't feel like I need to necessarily argue that to our culture after the amount of toilet paper that was bought last spring at the beginning of COVID, we know that preparation is important. And especially when it comes to things related to end of the world scenarios. So this morning, instead of looking at the zombie survival guide, we're going to have a survival guide to the last days. A survival guide to the last days. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 21, chapter 21, verse 24. So it kind of, is split between two different chapters. So you can turn with me there this morning. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, 
when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earth, great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that by your spirit, you would equip us to hear from your word this morning, that you'd help us to store up your word, lay it up in our hearts, that it would change the way that we think that it would change the things that we love and change the way that we act, that we would know how to glorify you in this world, that we would know how to make the name of Christ known. So work in us, we pray, by your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that we have seen regularly is this ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And that conflict only intensifies the closer and closer you get to Jesus being in Jerusalem and the closer and closer, closer you get to his death. In the first section of our passage today, Luke 20, 45 through 21, 4, it brings a final highlight to the problems with the religious leaders and the religious system of Jesus' day. I'm not going to be able to discuss these verses in the depth that I would like to because there's just so much to cover. But I do want to tell you that our community groups are going to be discussing these verses uh, this week. So that's a little plug for community group. If you're not plugged into one and you want to dive into these verses a little deeper, that's where we're going to go. Uh, but this morning, I'm just going to give a brief overview of these beginning verses. The big issue that Jesus is highlighting in these verses at the beginning is outward religion or mere outward religion versus true inward religion. 
and he sets up a stark contrast between the scribes, who are described in verses 45 through 47, and this poor widow in verses 1 through 4. The scribes had all of the outward showiness you could ask for. They walked around in their long robes. They loved fancy greetings. They loved the seats of honor. They loved to make long, fancy prayers. But Jesus makes it clear that they were spiritually dead. They were not obeying God's commandments. And then you have a poor widow in verses 1 through 4. She has no outward glory by the world's standards. But Jesus commends her for her reliance and dependence and commitment to God through the offering that she made. Two small copper coins. We did the math. It's about, it's about 1 64th of a day's wage. Just a few dollars in our money. And Jesus says that she gave more. I don't know what kind of math Jesus is doing because $5 is not more than $100. But in Jesus' economy, she gave more than all of the rich putting all of their money in the offering box because she was dependent on the Lord. She was showing her commitment. So Jesus is showing that you can have all the outward glory and showiness in the world, but be inwardly spiritually dead. And at the, on the flip side, you can have no outward glory in this world and be spiritually alive. And it's exactly that point that Jesus then applies to the temple in verses 5 through 6. Says some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. The temple was made of these huge, beautifully carved stones that had marble columns. Anybody that would have seen that temple would have said, This is truly a glorious building. Probably like in the couple times I've been in Europe when I visited these massive cathedrals. I think of St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, where you walk up to it, and it's made of all these many colored marble stones, and it's just glorious. You say, wow, look at this building. It had all of this outward glory. But again, you can have all the outward glory in the world and be spiritually dead. The temple can have all this outward glory, but be filled with hypocrisy and lies. And in our world today, we can have beautiful stained glass windows. We can have the best music team in the world. We can have all the Christian books and theology books that you could ask for and theology degrees and all the theological knowledge you could ask for. But if inside you are spiritually dead, then none of those things matter. None of them matter. So Jesus responds to the outward glory of the temple in verse six. He says, as for these things that you see, this beautiful temple that you're going on about, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this outwardly glorious temple, because it's inwardly filled with death, hypocrisy, and unbelief, it will be completely and utterly destroyed. And so the disciples ask a question in verse 7. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So that question in verse 7 and in the context that we just saw about outward versus inward religion and the destruction of the temple, that's the context to the rest of Luke 21, which is really where we're going to focus today. Luke 21 is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It's also recorded in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 through 25. And it's known as one of the trickiest sections of the entire New Testament to understand, probably right up there with the book of Revelation. 
and how many different opinions there are on, on how to interpret and understand what Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse. And the main debate centers around whether Jesus is talking about the year 70 AD, where Rome, Roman's armies, uh, Rome's armies led by the future emperor Titus siege, Rome, uh, siege Jerusalem and flattened the city and killed hundreds of thousands of people. So is Jesus talking about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem? Or is he talking about his second coming? Or the third option is, is he talking a little bit about both in the Olivet Discourse? And I don't really have time to get into like the nitty gritty minutia of all of the debates. If you want to study that and you're really into eschatology and those things, I'd love to recommend some books for you, some articles and lectures. Just email me this week and I'll get you that stuff. But I do briefly want to make the argument that Jesus in this passage is talking about both 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and his second coming. And the big key I think to look at is the question that is asked of Jesus in verse nine. This is the key. They ask Jesus when these things are going to take place and what the sign will be that those things are going to happen. When they say these things, they're referring to what Jesus has just predicted in verse 6, which is the destruction of the temple. So if Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21 is not talking about the destruction of the temple at all, then he's not answering their question. Jesus is answering their question, when will these things, when will the destruction of the temple that you've just talked about take place? But on the other hand, I don't think that this passage can be completely explained in light of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. The first point to that is what we'll see next week when Josh preaches on verses 25 through 28. A lot of what Jesus speaks of in there, I don't think can adequately be explained by what happens in 70 AD. I think it's clearly referring to Jesus' second coming. But then also, if you look at the parallel passages in Mark and Matthew, it, it sheds some light on what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 21, particularly in Matthew, in, verse, in chapter 24, verse 3. The way Matthew records the disciples' question is like this. They ask, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You notice what Matthew highlights in their question. Matthew highlights when will these things, the destruction of the temple, be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So the disciples in their minds had connected together the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and Jesus' return. And what Jesus does in the Olivet Discourse is he takes those two things that they had connected in their mind and he separates them. Now, they're still connected in some ways, and we'll see that as we go through the Olivet Discourse. But he separates them, at least temporally that when 70 AD comes, Jerusalem is destroyed, that that doesn't mean that at that moment, Jesus is going to return, that there's going to be a number of years after that, and then Jesus will return later. So we have 70 AD, destruction of Jerusalem, an intermittent time in between, and Jesus' return at the end of the age. Now, I know this sounds just like all this little technical detail type things, but it really matters. It matters for how we understand and interpret the Olivet Discourse. 
if Jesus is only talking about 70 AD, then this passage has already completely taken place. It's already just, it's only simply in the past for us. And so it might serve for a good example for us, but we can't directly apply it to us and our situation today. But if Jesus is talking about 70 AD and his second coming and the time in between, then as Christians living in 2021, this passage is directly applicable to us because we are currently living in the last days. And when I say the last days, I want to define what I mean by that because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the, what the term last days mean. Last days doesn't mean the tiny little sliver of time right before Jesus returns. One of my professors likes to say that the last days refers to a quality of time, not a quantity of time. So last days isn't just a short period of time. It's a, it's a time that is qualified by being the time in which the, the only remaining thing for God to do for our redemption is the return of Jesus. We are living between the cross, resurrection, and ascension and the return of Jesus. And so we are living in the last days. And that's how New Testament authors, like the author of Hebrew, can say, but in these last days. The author of Hebrew was living, Hebrews was living in the last days. Luke, when he wrote this gospel, was living in the last days. Martin Luther was living in the last days. And we are currently, ourselves, living in the last days. And so the Olivet Discourse is applicable to us as it helps us understand how we are to prepare to live in this world and in this present age. So our main idea for today is this. We got around to, got around to it eventually. Our, our big idea, here we go. Jesus followers live in the last days. Therefore, we must pay serious attention to his directions so that we will be prepared. Jesus followers live in the last days Therefore, we must pay serious attention to his directions so that we will be prepared. We're going to look at four things that we must know to be prepared. And those four things are not zombie physiology and habits and the proper weaponry to fend yourself off against zombies and how to make your home a good fort so that zombies can't get in. The four things that we must know for the end times and living in the last days are these things. Know who not to follow. Know what not to fear. Know how to face persecution. And know when to flee. Let me repeat those one more time. Know who not to follow. Know what not to fear. Know how to face persecution and know when to flee. So first, we must know who not to follow. In verses 8 through 11, Jesus is responding to their question, and he's particularly responding to the part of their question about a sign. The disciples wanted a sign so that they would know what is the thing when we see it that we'll know that these things are about to take place. And Jesus begins his answer, interestingly, not by giving them a sign, but by actually giving them a couple non-signs. And when I say non-signs, I mean he's saying, when you see these things, don't be fooled into thinking that it means that the end has come. These are things that people might mistake for signs when they're not actually signs. 
these things, I think a good way to think of them is these are things that are just characteristic of the last days in general. These are things that are going to happen from the beginning to the end, all the way up until Jesus returns. And the first is that false messiahs will come. Look with me to verse 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my, in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. It's interesting here is the three words in the ESV, I am he. It's actually just two words in the Greek. It's ego eimi. Those are the same two words that Jesus uses in all of his I am statements. So when Jesus says, many will come, they will say, I am he. He's saying people will rise up and they'll say, I'm the Messiah. People will falsely claim to be Jesus returned or any number of different things. And Jesus says, don't be fooled by those people. Don't listen to them. You know who your Messiah is. You know who the Christ is. Follow me. Don't go after that foolishness. Then he says, other people will come. They'll say, the time is at hand. People throughout the last days are going to say, I have figured out the code. I have seen that one definitive sign. I know that Jesus is returning in five years, three months, and two days. So join my group because the time is at hand. So come follow me. Jesus says, don't follow those people. They don't know what they're talking about. Don't listen when people come and they say, I've got it all figured out. I've figured out all the prophecy in the Bible. I know the date. No, they don't know the date. Don't go after those people. We need to know that as Christians living in 2021. We need to know who to follow, but we need to be really clear about who not to follow. And then second, we need to know what not to fear. We need to know what not to fear. So the second non-sign that Jesus gives related to his prediction is wars and tumults. Look with me to verses 9 through 11. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once, for the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So Jesus here describes two things. He describes national distress and natural distress. When I say national distress, that's when Jesus is talking about nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, wars, political turmoil. And then natural distress. And that's when he's talking about earthquakes and pestilences, tsunamis, viruses, right? These things are going to come. These things are going to happen. And Jesus says, when they come, don't be surprised. And don't think that just because there's a war on earth, that this, that means that at this moment, Jesus is going to come back. The end times are going to come. No, Jesus is saying, don't be fooled. And this matters for us because Jesus doesn't want us as his followers to get stirred up into some fearful frenzy every time something happens on earth, that we think that the end is coming. Because first off, Christians shouldn't be afraid of the end of the world. The return of Jesus is our hope. The return of Jesus is the thing that we long for. We should say, come Lord Jesus, come, not no, we don't want you to come, Jesus. I'm afraid of that. So first, don't be afraid of the end of the world. But secondly, 
we shouldn't be surprised by war and turmoil in our present age. Our life's not going to be some peaceful cakewalk on this earth, and we shouldn't expect it to be so. There's going to be war. There's going to be corruption and political turmoil. There's going to be famines and viruses. But when Jesus says that wars and tumults and all of these things come, he doesn't say it to make you afraid. In fact, Jesus does it for the exact opposite reason. Jesus tells us these things are going to come so that we won't be afraid. He says in verse 9, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. For some reason, our hearts have this tendency to be in a state of fearful frenzy about the state of our world instead of having a steady confidence in the plans of God. So think of yourself. Are you more marked by panic and fear or by steady confidence in the plans of God? Because Jesus says, do not be terrified. We need to know what not to fear. So know who not to follow, know what not to fear. And third, know how to face persecution. Look with me to verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now when Jesus says, before all this, what he's saying is he's pointing out that these things that he's about to talk about, which is persecution, that those things will be characteristics that will happen right at the very beginning of the last days and not just something that will happen later on. And persecution is something that happens throughout the last days, but what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples for the reality that once Jesus ascends back up into heaven, their lives are going to be pretty much marked by constant persecution. He's saying, this is going to happen right away. Don't think that it's going to be 40 years down the line that you're going to start facing persecution. It's going to happen right away. And if you look at the book of Acts, you'll see how quickly and accurately Jesus' prediction takes place. Pretty much right after his ascension, Christians are brought before synagogues. They're thrown in prisons. They're brought before governors. Some of them, like Stephen, are even killed, right? And Jesus doesn't want them to be caught off guard by the reality of persecution, and Jesus, for us today, doesn't want us to be caught off guard by the reality of persecution. And so he gives his disciples some specific directions for how to be prepared for the reality of persecution. First, in verses 13 through 15, Jesus tells his disciples to view persecution not primarily as a problem to be avoided, but as an opportunity to be embraced. So speaking of persecution, Jesus says, this will be, this, speaking of persecution, will be your opportunity to bear witness. Persecution is an opportunity through your life and the things that you say to bear witness, to testify to Jesus. The Greek word here for bear witness is martyrion, from martyrias. And guess what English word comes from martyrias? Martyr right? In, in martyrdom, when people lose their life for the faith, both through their death and through the words that they say, they are proclaiming the gospel. That's what it means to be a martyr, to be someone who bears witness. 
and Christians, when we're persecuted, not just when we are put to death, but in any form of persecution, Christians, through their steady confidence in God and their proclamation of the gospel, make Jesus known. It's an opportunity for evangelism and witness. So when you think about persecution, do you think of the word opportunity? Because persecution, it is a scary thing, right? It is something that's frightening to think about the reality of persecution or the possibility of persecution uh, growing worse and worse in America or something like that. But I think if we spend all of our time trying to avoid persecution, that we might also at the same time be running away from Christ's calling to proclaim his gospel to the world. So I just have a challenge for us just to look at the way that we talk about things in our world and the way that we talk about persecution and things. I think as Christians, we need to spend a lot less time lamenting the possibility of persecution in America and spend more time praying that God would use persecution to purify and refine his church and to be a display to the world that Christ is King and Savior. We need to stop lamenting the possibility of persecution. And we need to view persecution as an opportunity for the gospel to go forward and to say, Lord, if that's what you choose to bring on us, to purify us, to make us more like Christ so that Christ will be known, then so be it. Your will be done. We need to stop running, being so, so constantly afraid of persecution as Christians. Then Jesus goes on talking of persecution in verse 16 says, you will be delivered up by parents, brothers, relatives, friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Jesus is describing how painful persecution will be. Not just painful physically, but painful relationally. Families will be divided. Friends will betray friends. Christ's people will be hated for his namesake. And that some of Christ's followers will even die for the things that they believe. But I want us to just notice and sit here for a moment on how sweet Jesus' words are for a persecuted Christian, the words that follow this. Jesus says, but not a hair from your head will perish. By endurance, you will gain your lives. But not a hair of your head will perish. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Clearly, he's not saying that we won't face any physical harm. Not a hair from your head will perish. Clearly, we're just going to walk through this unscathed, right? No, because he just promised that some will be put to death. So that can't be what Jesus means when he said, not a hair from your head will perish. What he's doing is he's referencing the same idea that he said back in Luke 12, verses 4 through 7. You don't need to turn there, but please listen to these words. He's talking about persecution here as well. He says, I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not you are of more value than many sparrows. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. 
fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So how do we face persecution as Christians? We face persecution by knowing that not one hair on our head is outside of the sovereign and loving care of our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we make this strange mistake by thinking that only the good things that come to us in our life are, are things that come to us from God. We get a raise at work or a new job. We get a good grade on some assignment or we catch some, some good break and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for how wise and good your plan is for me, which we should. But then sorrow comes and suffering comes. And we say, surely this can't be God's plan for me. What happened to God's wisdom and his care and his love? But that doesn't solve the problem for us. In fact, I think if we limit the sovereignty of God in our lives to just the good things that happen to us, that we're cutting off the very lifeline that sustains us through the middle of suffering. We need to know that God is, so is sovereign over us and caring for us even in our suffering. So in suffering and pain and persecution, the truth that we need to know is that even those things come to us by our Father's wise, loving, and sovereign hand. And that not a hair will, will fall from our head. Nothing can happen to us apart from our Father's love and care. And that all things are working for, the, working for good for those who love God and are called by him. And that includes suffering. That includes persecution. So brothers and sisters, this is exactly how we endure. This is how we endure. And this is how we gain our lives. Endurance in verse 19, it doesn't mean that things will be easy, that painful things won't hurt, that sorrow won't be sad. It's called endurance because it's hard. If I went and ran a 13-mile race, a half marathon right now, and I ran it alongside someone that had been training longer than me, they may have more endurance than me, but I promise you their legs are going to be hurting. I promise you their lungs are going to be hurting. It's called an endurance race because endurance hurts. It takes a lot of strength to push through. But we can endure. We can face hardship. Not because it's easy, but because our sovereign God is caring for us. And our Father is watching over us according to his wise, wise and good plan. And he will keep us to the end, to an eternal and unperishable life. And that is good news for us. So we must know who not to follow, what not to fear, how to face persecution. And lastly, we must know when to flee. Know when to flee. So these last verses that we're going to look at here, verses 20 through 24, they deal very, very clearly with 70 A.D., these are about the destruction of Jerusalem. Armies will surround Jerusalem. It will be utterly destroyed. And if you look at these verses, particularly verses 22 through 24, you see how frightening this destruction is, how violent the destruction is. As Josh mentioned a couple weeks ago, some estimates on the high end say that over a million people died during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the Romans, if you read descriptions of it, Rome, the Romans were indescribably brutal in the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's uncomfortable. But as uncomfortable as it is for us, we have to see that this desolation and destruction was ultimately God's act of judgment 
against an unbelieving people. So we noted at the beginning of this, and as we've seen throughout Luke, the religious leaders had become corrupt. The temple had been defiled. And as we'll see soon, the people rejected and killed the very Messiah who had been sent to them. Jesus is speaking of the fulfillment of what he spoke of in the parable of the Minas in chapter 19, when he said, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And then in the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus said that the master will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is God's judgment against sin. And what does Jesus command to his disciples in this passage? It's in verse 21. Jesus says, flee. He says, flee, run, get out of there, escape that judgment. And where, where Jesus had given all of these non-signs, here he gives one very sure sign. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee, run, get out of there. And that's actually a very gracious warning to his followers. He's showing them how to escape the wrath and judgment that is to come. He's saying, run and flee. And if by the accounts that we have of this are true, we know that the Christians did escape. Because of these very words of Jesus, the Christians in Jerusalem knew when to get out. And they ran and they fled and they survived. As we'll see next week, uh, Jesus jumps right from this promised judgment of Jerusalem to the topic of his own return. So the judgment of Jerusalem is just a foreshadowing of a greater judgment that is to come. And Jesus' warning of that future judgment to come is just as much a gracious warning to us as his warning to the believers in the early church was about the desolation coming in 70 AD. Jesus is saying there is a judgment to come but there's a way to escape it. There's a way to flee. So how do we flee the coming judgment? We flee by running to Jesus because Jesus is the only sure hope of our salvation. Jesus is the one who has shielded us from the wrath and judgment of God by his own death and by his own precious blood. Jesus bore the curse and judgment of God so that his people would be delivered from the desolation and destruction to come. Jesus, in his grace, has shown us the way to salvation. So flee to Jesus. Run to him. He is your only hope of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has given us such good warnings that he's taught us how to be prepared to live in this world, to be prepared for the sorrows and suffering that will come, to be prepared for even the judgment to come. Father, help us to not fear the world. Help us to not fear the persecution that might come, but help us to look to Christ. Help us to see that he really is the only sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm that he is the one who can shield us. He is the one who can save us. Help us to run to him, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.